0: You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. This is an unbelievable text. We're going to be in this text for two weeks. On the screen, you're going to see one more time and next week as well, the missions revival theme, praying for harvesters. The theme comes from the text, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse number 36. And before we move into the text, and I already announced it's going to be a part one, part two message, before we move into part one and, and dive into the text, I want to read to you very carefully, and they're in your worship guide, I want to read to you three quotes from three great missionaries of years gone by. And I want you to pay attention to these quotes and reference them in your mind, in your spirit, even throughout the week, and in, in, in response to what we're going to talk about uh, today. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the 1800s, and he said, Would that God would make hell so real to us that we cannot rest, heaven so real that we must have men there, Christ so real that our supreme motive and aim shall be to make the man of sorrows the man of joy by the conversion to him of many. David Livingston, a Scottish missionary and doctor to Africa in the 1800s, and I quote, if a commission... By an earthly king is considered an honor. How can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? William Carey, farther back than both Hudson Taylor and David Livingston, born in 1761, initiated the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society in. And uh, 1792 did a great work in India, is known for a a statement he made that has been used uh, throughout really missions history, and that is expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And he said this, to know the will of God, we need an open map and an open Bible, or an open Bible and an open map. Now, in just a moment, we're going to read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. But before we do that, I want to I just give you a little insight into the gospel of Matthew. Matthew himself splits the story of God's history of salvation into four missional time periods. And this is interesting. We're going to identify which missional time period in Matthew's book are we in. Let's pay close attention to that because we are living On mission for God in one of those four time periods. First of all, we see the prophets proclaiming the promise of Jesus. In the Old Testament, all of the prophets, some scholars say over 300 times, spoke of the coming of the Messiah. And then secondly, we see in Matthew, Jesus' own redemptive mission, fulfilling the promise of the prophets. This was fulfilled in Jesus' earthly life. This is the gospel from which we study the life of Christ. Our supreme example is before us in Scripture. Every time we open the Word, we can read about the example that Jesus set for us and the work that He did while He was here fulfilling the mission. The third missional time period was the commissioning of the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And then the fourth time period would be the angelic mission— of the return of Christ to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And that's coming at the end of time when Jesus returns. Today, it's important that you understand in the, outset, uh, or the onset of this two-sermon series, two-part series. It's important that you understand that you and I stand in the third time period. We're living in the time period of the commissioning of the disciples. Though it's 2,000 years after... I realize that it's 2,000 years later, but nothing has changed. We are still living in a time period where we are to go make disciples of all nations. And in the book of Matthew, we see three incredibly inspirational passages where Matthew's gospel stands out as examples of that. Matthew 24:14 says this: "And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed." throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, the end will come. One of the things that I enjoy most about these boxes that we're going to be referencing a little later on in the message and towards the end of the sermon, one of the things I enjoy most about this is this is an example of the gospel of Jesus Christ through a simple little shoebox during Christmas time, going across the world to all nations, containing the gospel the message of salvation, the good news of Jesus that can reach into the hands and hearts of over 11 million children, fulfilling the mission of God. In Matthew 28, verse 16, the Great Commission, where the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain of which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We find a third text in the book of Matthew, a third text that stands very clearly as a missional statement from Jesus to us. Verse 35. Of Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. First of all, here's what he did. He taught in their synagogues. Secondly, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And thirdly, he healed every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed. They were helpless, like sheep, without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers, not so much. In fact, just just a few of them, not many. Churches are full, but laborers are few. Churches have two services because they can't fit all the people into the building at one time. But, 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 but laborers in the harvest? I'm talking about sitting on pews. I'm talking about getting out there where the fields are right. Harvest plentiful. Huge. Laborers. Just a few. Therefore, pray earnestly. To the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. Church, in this passage, Jesus, his compassion on those separated from God and his urge to see them rescued is clearly seen. And what I want to do is open your eyes this morning to that. That the fact that Jesus had compassion on those that were separated from God, those that were on their way, to separation for all eternity from God. He wanted to see them rescued. So he was moved with compassion. And in verse 35, we see three things that this would have included. He would have been moved to teach them. He would have been moved to preach to them the good news. He would have been moved to get involved in their lives and see them touched and healed and rescued of their sin. And it is by these methods that Jesus was able to help the harassed and the helpless. And to harvest them to the kingdom. But I want you to see something here. The Christian's part in this is not simply to watch Jesus from the audience. I sense today that church has become much like watching television. We're not a part of the show. We're not one of the actors. We've just got a remote control. And we press what church we're going to, and we come, and we hear, and we're entertained, and we sit. sometimes we stand. We're the audience. But Jesus commands the disciples to pray. He commands them to pray and to ask God to send out laborers into the harvest. Now remember, then, then, 2,000 years ago, and now, 2,000 years later, the laborers are still few, while the crop to be harvested is huge. So the source of the problem is not that the crop is huge. That's not the source of the problem. The source of the problem is that the laborers are lacking. So Jesus not only commands the disciples to pray that God would raise up more harvesters. He doesn't just ask them to pray that God would do that. He also sends them out to show how serious he is. i would never really taken time to notice this before, but as I read further into the text, and sometimes because of chapter divisions, we're just, we, we stop. And, and I do too. I, I have done that for years until... On this particular text, I decided to go ahead and read into Matthew 10. So he's having this conversation with the disciples. He gathers them together in verse number 1 of chapter 10. He calls to him the 12 disciples. Hey, guys, come here, come here, come here. And then in verse 5, he sends them out. They themselves are an answer to the prayer that they are commanded to pray. The reality of that stunned me two weeks ago when I realized that this wasn't just about praying. This was about praying and realizing that I am the answer to my own prayer. That Jesus calls us together. We gather to scatter. We come together so that we might then take the gospel to the city of Hot Springs, to the state of Arkansas, to this country, and to the world. There's an urgency here. An urgency. Now, whenever there's an urgency, the preacher preaches with urgency. The Greek word translated as sent out in the verse that we read a moment ago, that Greek word is translated literally to mean thrust violently. In other words, the harvest often was a metaphor for the end times. So the farmer who hired laborers to harvest the crop The farmer that would hire these laborers, come in. We desperately need to get busy. He knows the importance of gathering the harvest before it rots. So this particular farmer is more than likely not going to be too gentle with the workers because it's urgent. And because it's urgent, he knows the importance of them getting out into the field. The fact that 2,000 years have passed since this event took place does not lessen its urgency. Not one bit. 2,000 years have passed. And still today, Jesus says to you and I, as his disciples, as his followers, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Today, we are still to pray that God would expel laborers and at the same time, be ready to go ourselves. Isaiah chapter 6 was preached on Wednesday night by the Mission Revival speaker. And as I went every night, and I was blessed to go every night. We all have busy schedules, but that's such a priority to me. Well, you're the pastor. You have to go. If you look at it that way, that's fine. But trust me, I don't go because I have to go. I go because I want to go. And Wednesday night, as he stood up and talked about Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and as a result of what Isaiah saw, the Bible says in verse number 8 that he said, Hear my Lord, send me. What Isaiah saw moved him to do something about it. It moved him to action. Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God moved him to total surrender. Notice our text, Matthew 9, 36. When he, just like Isaiah. Isaiah saw the Lord, Jesus saw the crowds. Isaiah saw the Lord, Jesus saw the people. He saw, the King James uses the word multitudes. He saw the crowds, he saw Another uh, translation says he saw the masses. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Thus, the title of this two-part series sermon is this, Harvesting the Harassed and the Helpless. What Jesus saw moved him. Now, there are five senses In every person that are activated every moment they're awake. And you know what they are. Simply put, they are sight, touch, smell, taste, and hearing. All five of those are activated every moment that we are awake. Out of 100%. If you were to take 100% and say, okay, let's put each one of those senses, let's give them a, 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 a percentage of how I make my decisions, who I am, how I'm impressed, what what moves me to do so, what what percentage would sight get? Well, out of 100%, by far, the most important organs of sense are the eyes. By far. We perceive 80% of all impressions by means of our sight. 80%. 80% 80%, 80% of the decisions we make, of the way we are affected, of the way we are moved, of the way that we respond is attributed to our eyesight. Let me give you an example. Growing up, when I was 28 years old, I saw this. I'll never forget it. I can't hardly look at it now without remembering a 28-year-old preacher boy flipping through Time magazine and seeing the picture that Kevin Carter took. Kevin Carter was a photojournalist who took this photo in 1993 in Sudan as a famine racked the land. He's pictured as a starving toddler who had collapsed on the way to a feeding center. And Kevin took the child's picture as a plump vulture landed nearby. Years later, Kevin Carter committed suicide. He couldn't live with himself because he took the picture and then walked away. He didn't do anything about it. He couldn't even live with himself. Jeff Wider took this photo. Most of you will recognize this. It was the morning of June 5th, 1989. I was 24 years old. It was the day after Tiananmen Square Massacre, Widener lined up his lens and just as a man carrying shopping bags stepped in front of the war machines, waving his arms and refusing to move. And this iconic picture, said to be the top five pictures that have ever been taken by a photojournalist that have impacted society, most people see this picture and know exactly where it was and when it was and looked at that man who stood and would not move in response chaos in his nation the next picture is one that almost everyone will recognize it's called the falling man picture taken by Richard Drew in the moments after the September 11th 2001 attacks it was called one man's distinct escape from the collapsing twin towers chose to jump to escape the fires and the flames that were caused as those airplanes penetrated the tower. When I see that I moved. The explosion of the second atomic bomb in Nagasaki, a familiar picture that everyone recognizes when that bomb shot up ashes, 45 feet thousand feet high, these radioactive dust and debris. Lieutenant Charles Levy, he shot 16 photographs, yet this was the most famous, as 80,000 people were either killed or displaced as a result of that bomb. One that's kind of more of an iconic picture, but with a better story, on the evening of July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong took a photo of Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, and then probably the most famous picture ever taken, as far as in wartime, and uh, just this is one that I remember. It was not staged, by the way. Joe Rosenthal took this picture of five Marines and a Navy corpsman raising the American flag on the captured Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima in 45 as they claimed it as an air base. And all of these pictures we see, and we're moved to either move to action, move to patriot, move to tears. We're moved to something as we see these pictures. we will show you one more that a young preacher flipping through World Magazine saw this picture. I've showed this picture to our church at least five times in 30 years. Seems like every five years I have to show it because I preach something that God says, show that picture again. So if you've been here for 30 years, you've probably seen it five times. Her name is Asatu. She's from Somalia. When I saw this picture, it moved me to want to read the article. A lot of things you see when you read or when you flip through a magazine, but not every article you read, but I had to read this one. I had to. And as I read the article, I was, I was blessed by this missionary that went to this Somalian village, spent 30 days with these villagers, about 100 people in Asatu's village. He connected with the people. He began to teach the gospel. And as those 30 days went by, different people would come to Christ and make a decision to follow Christ and... And, and, and walk away from their idols and, and from Islam. And they got saved. And a, a, a little revival took place in this small little village on the other side of the world. And then the missionary left to go to the next village. Shortly after that, an Islamic terrorist group came into that village after hearing the missionary had been there. And people had decided to follow Jesus. And so the Islamic terrorist came into, the article said, Asatu's little family's tent that she lived in. Her little dwelling, her little hut. The terrorist said, either you renounce the name of this Jesus or we will chop your hands off. And then you see the article, they put my hands on the ground, they cut them off quickly. The left first, I fell to the ground. And as I read this brave story of a 13-year-old girl that was not ashamed of her Jesus, that she only knew for about a week, I was so moved. Throughout, throughout my lifetime, I've, I've, been moved. I've been moved. I've been moved this week. This week of preaching, this week of testimony, this week of interviews. I mean, Tuesday night, listening to this pastor and his wife on the stage share their burden for this little town in Georgia and share what God is doing and, and their heartaches and their, and their ups and their downs, I was so moved, so moved to make a difference, so moved to do something about it, so moved not to, to take a faith promise mission card and say, well, hey... Honey, you think a couple Starbucks coffees would do it? Hey, what about a happy meal, kids? I'm so moved that I had to say, yo, wait a minute, Eric. Well, what about, okay, what can you do over here? You've got this little income from, from hogs. You've got your little food truck. You've got a little gym. You've got your, your paycheck from the church. You've got some other thing. What can you do, Eric, to accumulate a sacrificial offering to make a difference in this world? Because I moved so moved that I just can't react in a way that is nonchalant or apathetic if Jesus said, you are violently being thrusted into this world to make a difference. Then why does preaching like this bother us? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe this is exactly what we need. I know I need it. What you see will either cause you to be complacent Or it will stir you to think. And when we stop and think... When we take time to really meditate on the, on the missions department, on the, on the vision for this world, on, on hot springs, on what's happening in our city, and maybe part of my passion, I'm, I, I would confess that since I've gotten more outside the walls of the church, since I'm not, you know, since I'm not in my office as much as I was, and, and I'm not just in a little box, since I've gotten out, maybe some of what I'm doing here lately has just given me a greater burden for the city of hot springs as I see the corruption, and I, I see the crime, and I, and I see the homeless people and the problems we have in our own city maybe some of it is that but I want to tell you some church you can't help but to see with your eyes something that doesn't move you to do something about it and this morning's message is to follow our supreme example which is Jesus Christ in all things and Jesus Christ said in verse 36 that what he saw with his eyes moved him with compassion for the people this week at our missions revival, what I saw, what I heard, moved me. Moved me to pray. God, what do you want me to do? God, I just, I've got to do something. People need Jesus. People need you, God. They need you. What can I do? What can I go without? What can I sacrifice? It really isn't a sacrifice, God. It really isn't. I live in a country. I mean, in a moment, I'm going to tell you this. I'll tell you now, that of the, of the 11 million boxes that will go around the world today, 10 million will come from the U.S., 10 of the 11 million boxes that will be sent to children around the world come from this wealthy, blessed country. We are so blessed. What we call sacrifice is, is, is honestly, if we meditate and think about it, it's not exactly, really, all that sacrificial. So I'm asking us today to think, to meditate, to pray, to seek God. So many Christians, it seems, are not moved to participate The average believer comes to church, we sit, we stand, we sit, we stand, but we're not stirred. We're not stirred. Jesus saw the condition, he saw the position, he saw the heartache, he saw the hurt, he saw the indecency, he saw the hunger, he saw the difficulties, he saw the stress, he saw the aggravation, he saw the agitation. And Jesus was moved with compassion by what he saw with his vision. Now there's three things that I think we can clearly see here in the text. And I want to point out one of them to you this morning and the other two next Sunday. So only one today. And the one I want you to see clearly in the text is this. Jesus saw their neglect. He saw it. He saw the crowds. And when he saw the crowds, he clearly says, in verse 36, look at it with me. He says, they were harassed. They were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Notice in verse 36 here, these three ways they were neglected. The Message Bible says they were confused. The KJV says they fainted. The the New American Standard says they were distressed. They were harassed. People were and are harassed. They're harassed by demonic activity. They're confused by the religious leaders of the day. I mean, I even wonder sometimes if through the years of 30 years of pastoring one church... Have I I often confused people? I mean, preaching the gospel of grace and and, and by faith, and and it it, it costs nothing, and yet seemingly at times adding rules and and, and guilt to people. I mean, you you can't help but It weren't my intentions, but I wonder if I confuse people sometimes. As a religious leader in this community, I wonder how guilty we are sometimes as pastors and leaders of confusing people like they were confused in Jesus' day. But what is the real gospel? fainting with abuse and stress and work. People all across this community fainting, hurting, abused, stressed out, distressed by the economy, the threat of war and a recession. Jesus saw that, and he was moved. They were helpless. They were harassed. They were helpless. The, the message says aimless, the KJ, the, uh, I think the NLT says dispirited, and another translation says they were scattered. I'm not sure if I have the translations right on those lists, but I looked up different, just different words to make this word helpless come more alive to me. Aimless, dispirited, scattered, people were and are today helpless against addiction, helpless against drugs, helpless against alcohol, helpless against pornography, helpless against sex and all the other things that they're addicted to. Aimless, hurt, betrayed, and abused. Dispirited, cast down, beat down, scattered, discarded, walked on. We see it all across even our community. And it's so easy to think that just stopping by a street corner and giving a dollar to a, somebody standing on the street corners is, is helping. It, it's, that's not what we're talking about here. They were sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were wandering aimlessly. They were homeless. And I realize we have a homeless problem in our city. I know that. I, yesterday I had the privilege of going to the Samaritan's ministry banquet last night with my wife. And we took Glow. And, man, it was, I had a lot to do. Shane Robertson invited me. He was here in the first service. He's a member of our church. And, man, honestly, I didn't want to go. I just had so much to do. I couldn't imagine a Saturday night. Got to preach on Sunday, and then we had games and meetings and all kinds. But I said, you know what? I love Shane. He wants me to go. It means a lot to him. He bought my ticket. I'm going. So I went. So I got there at 6 o'clock. I don't even know where to start. You say, well, pastor, you know, you kind of like that. You kind of, you know, you, you, you get excited so easily. You know, I mean, it's just your personality, well, can we quit blaming that on our personality and just kind of blame it on Jesus? Because maybe Jesus, when He put Himself in situations like I put myself in last night, I put myself in front of a ministry in Hot Springs that's reaching homeless people every day, feeding people every night, Sleeping people in the massive facility. I heard the leader get up and say they, they've been raising money to, to revolutionize this building so they can home more homeless people, feed more homeless people, help more homeless. They've got all kinds of little uh, storefronts where these men are making wood projects. And I couldn't believe it. Like, this is in my city, four or five blocks away from where I pastor? You're here? And then he began to tell us their needs. And he said, you know, one of our greatest needs is we need, we need just different churches that will take... One night a month, I'm going to quote, unquote, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, here it is, quote, but they don't return our calls. So we only have 15, and, and, and I think they've been doing this for five years, we've only got 15 groups that come in and feed these homeless men at night. Well, what do you think I did right there? I leaned over to the guy next to me who said, yeah, I said, I do red beans and rice one Thursday night a month. I said, first of all, did you just say red beans and rice? That's the first thing I said, because I'm from New Orleans. I love red beans and rice. I said, what, what do I have to do to come and taste those? He said, give the devotion. I said, I'll be there. I'll put it down on my calendar. I'm going Thursday. His, he gave me the Thursday next. I said, I'll be there. I'll do the devotion, and i will eat red beans and rice. I said, "So tell me about your group. He said, well, it's not even our church. It's just me and my buddies. He said, I go to a church in the village, but I just called some of our friends. I said, hey, man, they're having a hard time getting people to cook for the homeless once a month. And I was just curious, you know, if you might want to help me. And so he said, for five years, we've been cooking red beans and rice one Thursday every month. He said, man, it'll change your life. He said, I couldn't quit if I wanted to. When those men look in your eyes and say thank you and you see the pain and the hurt and the harassed and the helpless and the sheep without a shepherd, he said, you can't wait to go. And this pastor of 30 years was convicted by a businessman who showed me the love of Jesus in a way that I had not seen it in a while. And I committed. I said, I don't know if my church will be interested, but we're going to take one night if it's got to be me and, and the kids or the wife. Sorry, honey, I didn't tell you the story yet. No, you were there. She was with me. We'll do whatever we have to do, but I sure would love to see us get involved and take one night. They've only got 50 nights. Wouldn't it be great if, they could, if I could call that guy Monday and say, hey, Gospelite's got a night. Sorry for not answering the phone call because he said he called us and we didn't call back. I was one of those churches. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. Sheep without a shepherd or a menu for the wolves. You know, I've seen my share of verse 36 in my lifetime. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, divorced home. My mom and dad were divorced when I was three. We lived, you know, we we lived, we weren't poor, but we definitely lived in tough areas, areas where, you know, you had to watch yourself at night and be careful, and it was kind of scary, you know? I've never really been scared to live in the hood. That's why I love living on Third Street. I love it. I love living where the people are. I love living where the action is, where, where hurting people are. I love working alongside people. I don't want folks to have to feel intimidated. That's just how, how I was raised, and I've, I've kind of taken that into this world. So it's a little maybe easier for me just to connect with the harassed and helpless. So the first year we started Gospel Light, we didn't have much of a building, but we started what's called the Thanksgiving Day Feast. All we had was a hallway, and it was a, a narrow hallway. It wasn't much to offer, but we wanted to feed people on Thanksgiving Day because I never understood why it, Thanksgiving Day should just be about television and football games and sleeping late and eating till you can't get up. I always thought, no, it's about being thankful first. And, and what better way to be thankful than to go and help someone who's less fortunate? So we started this Thanksgiving Day feast and we fed 36 or 8 the first year and then 60 or so the second year. And then Hundred and two and three, and we started feeding the firemen and the policemen and the folks that had to work at the gas stations and it got bigger. Last year we fed thirteen hundred. But about ten years ago, I was out with Bucky Robinson in a van picking up homeless people. I had a sweet spot where I found a little colony. And so it was over there where Samaritan's ministry is on the other side of the tracks, not behind Popeye's. That's one everybody knows about. It's 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 another one by the creek where they can take baths easy in the morning. And so I got over there, and I saw seven or eight tents, and I just started going, all right, guys, come on now. I'm going to feed you today. And I'd open the tent, and I'd just open every. All right, guys, come on now. Get up. Let's go. You know, they'd get up and walk, walk out to the van, you know. and I had the van packed. Bucky was ready to go. I was ready to go. This is kind of how we did it in the days gone by. Before I got in the van, I noticed there was a man walking across the tracks, looked as sharp as you could imagine. I mean, he was dressed. I was dressed nice, and he was dressed nice, and so I thought he was a pastor. So I said, hey, hey, you're a pastor or one of the guys helping today? Because there's several other programs going on on Thanksgiving Day. And he said, no, I'm, I guess I don't look, but I'm homeless too. Just got here to Hot Springs. I said, well, hey, I, I'm sorry. I, you don't look homeless, but would you like to come in the van and eat with, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm too proud to do that. He goes, I, I, I couldn't do that. And I said, what's your name? He said, Tom. Tom Entrickin. I said, well, Tom, I said, um, why don't I give you my business card? Let me write my cell phone down on this, and you give me a call when you want to tell me your story. I'd love to hear your story. I'm sure it's fascinating. So I got in the van and brought people to the Thanksgiving Day feast, and we fed hundreds of people that day and had a wonderful time and loved on them and cared for them and and, and just had what we do every year. And then Monday morning I come, bebopping into the office, and I notice sitting at the reception's desk is Tom! I couldn't believe it! I was like, Tom! He goes, yeah, he got his head Hey, preacher, I'm, I'm not here to see you. I'm here to set up an appointment. I know you're busy. and you got a, a full day. I just came. Is your secretary here yet? I was just going to see if I could set up an appointment. I said, Tom, no, 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 no. I want to see you now, man. I've got things to do. Let me go. Give me two minutes. Let me rearrange my schedule. Get you in quickly. So I did that. Called a few people. Hey, could you meet later? Could we do this, that? I got Tom in. I said, Tom, tell me your story. He told me that alcohol had ravaged his home for 10 years. he just moved from Virginia to, to Arkansas, or rather not moved, he had hitchhiked, and he just got tired of hitchhiking, and got tired of walking. He just landed in Hot Springs, and he said, it's been about three weeks since my home just exploded, and I've lost everything. And he said, I just have no hope, and you told me I could call you, and that you wanted to hear my story, and I don't know, I've just been thinking about you for the past three or four days, and so really, that's it. And he got up to leave, and I said, Tom, wait, don't leave yet. And I shared with Tom the hope that we can have in Jesus. I saw that he had no hope, but I know Jesus could offer him hope, as he did me when I was 13 years old. And, and so I gave him that message of the gospel, the good news. I mean, it was just obvious that God had put him in my life for such a time as this. And I led Tom to Christ. He bowed and said he trusted Christ. He got baptized the next Sunday. He moved into a little house the church had. We weren't using it. Bucky Robinson would stop by every day and feed him until... He got mugged on the streets of Hot Springs and murdered. And then they called me to do his funeral. And so five people were there, me and Bucky and three others from the church that they kind of got to know him. All that to say this, when you see somebody's eyes and you see the hopelessness in their eyes, it's almost cold-hearted, anti-Christian, impossible to imagine walking away from that. I'm simply saying this, God is calling you and I today, 2,000 years later, to harvest the and helpless, to find someone in this community who truly needs the gospel, somebody who is hurting, somebody who is helpless, somebody who is down and out listen the temptation to avoid is we must not yield to the temptation that when we see people who are harassed and helpless and shepherdless that we say they've gone too far there's nothing we can do and there's no hope for them avoid that temptation because i i admit that temptation has won in my life before i told you a victory story i could tell you some other ones that aren't so victorious I know I've walked away from some. I've been too busy for some. I've looked at some and said, you know what? It's just, they're too far gone. It's, you say, pastor, that's so, exactly. That's why we had a confessional prayer today. That wasn't just because we're all great, don't need help. No, that confessional prayer is because all of us need today to admit that we're missing it. That we're falling short, that we need God's grace and help in our lives to even fulfill this commission in the first place. We must not embrace that temptation. There is hope in Jesus. There's this hope. I'll close with this. I'm, I'm preaching for a guy by the name of James West in about three weeks. And James is a, is, a, is a graduate of our college. Just out of curiosity, is there anybody in this building that remembers James and Amanda West? Raise your hand. Wow! That's a lot of people. James came here to go to Bible college as a married man. He was newly married, and he came to go to college at Champion, and James was on fire. He had quit his job. He got called to preach. One of those stories, he left it all, you know, and he followed Jesus. He came to Champion, of all places. And he starts coming to church, and he just gets on fire. And so, I preached a message on a Sunday night. We had Sunday night church back then, and I preached a message, and James came forward and made a decision, said, can I talk to you after the service, pastor? And I said, sure. So, I went up to James, and I said, oh, rather, James came up to me, and he said, well, well, well pastor, I want to tell you something God's put on my heart. And I said, what is it? He said, I, I, want, I want to know if you'll allow us. I know, I, know, I know, you know, some of the guys that want to help me, but curfew's at 11 o'clock, and I'm really thinking about doing this, like, later than 11, because people are on the streets. They're hurting. They're helpless. They're struggling, and I've been driving down Hot Springs, uh, downtown area. It's, it's incredible. We got to get those people saved, Pastor. And I'm like, he says, would you, if they're like surrendered to preach and an upperclassman, would you give them permission to be gone until one o'clock in the morning if they're with me? I said, sure. Yeah, yeah we'll do that, you know. And uh, so he got five or six guys to go with him the first time he did this. They met at the church at 11. They prayed. They went downtown Hot Springs with tracks in their hands, and just started inviting people to church and witnessing the people. I wake up that next morning and I had my red light flashing, which means I've got a message. So I pressed, hear your messages, and it was James. He said, preacher, this is James. I'm at Waffle House. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I've got seven people that got saved tonight. I'm buying them breakfast, and they're all coming in the morning to get baptized. Is that Okay. I said, James, are you serious? He goes, Yeah, preacher, I'm serious. No, well, I, I, I'm sorry, it was a message. And uh, I, I called him back. I said, James, are you serious? Uh, they're ready? He goes, Oh, preacher, I haven't gone to sleep. He goes, i have getting them showers. They're, they've got showers. They're all ready to come to church. We've been up all night. They're ready. They're so excited. I'm so excited, preacher. This is amazing. So they come that Sunday morning. We baptized all seven of them. All seven. After he came up to me with tears in his eyes, and he said, Preacher, I'd like to start this ministry every Saturday night. I go, Man, James, it looks like it's gonna be productive. He said, Could we call it the Midnight Cry? For four years, till he graduated. James had a ministry here called the Midnight Cry. They ended up baptizing 39 converts from downtown Hot Springs, all because a man saw something I didn't see. I've been pastoring this church for years. I'm driving down Hot Springs downtown. I'm looking at people, I'm looking at the harassed and helpless, but I'm not seeing what he's seeing. I've got so much going on for whatever reason. I wasn't there. I was, I was apathetic. I, I didn't, you know, you say, well, you're being too hard on yourself. Well, somebody's got to be hard on themselves or we're just going to keep tiptoeing through the tulips. Somebody's got to point their finger at somebody and it's going to be me. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. And I stand today in front of you telling you an older story to illustrate the fact that what are we seeing with our eyes and is it affecting our hearts? Are we doing something about it? We have these boxes before us. And to be honest, I, I, I know this is just 250 boxes minus 100 after the first service finished. I know it's not 12 million boxes, but it's 250 of the 12 million. And you know what? They all have the gospel. Every single one of these. Last year, 10.5 million went around the world. This year, the goal is 11 million I already told you 9.5 million of those come right here from the U.S. Over 498,000 volunteers. Every shoebox contains the gospel. Let me say that again. Every shoebox contains the gospel. 11 million gospel presentations around the world. It's unbelievable to me. You say, Pastor, there you go again, getting excited. <laughs> That's not exciting? I love that. For many boys and girls, their shoebox is the first gift they ever receive. I need my grandkids to hear this right now, Deaf. You know, I've got what we call Papa Day. Papa Day is a day that I take one grandchild, if I'm lucky, and we'll go to Walmart. We'll talk, and my wife says, make sure to teach him something about the Bible when you do this." You know, I'm getting better, and um, so we'll go to Walmart and we'll get out and. Uh, I, I have Glow with me. Glow goes with me every Sunday afternoon, so she's she's on my on my side, and she's saying, "Hey, hello, Walmart! Thank you." She's patting people on the back if I'm lucky. Sometimes, anyway. So we're having a time at Walmart, and there's little Lainey or Bentley or KJ or Nora. Papa, what's my max today? Oh yeah, <laughs> what's my max? So here's what I'm going to do, and I did it last year. So this year, I got six grandkids. So I'm taking six boxes. I'll probably get a couple for you and I too. But I'm going to, I've already got my six right there, and, and I'm going to take the grandkids, and we're going to say, hey, this isn't Papa Day for you. This is Papa Day for somebody around the world. And you get to pick out the gifts, and we're going to have a blast. You see, when we really take this to heart, we can think of a lot of ways to impact this stack of boxes to where when we leave today, either there's none or very few left. Wouldn't that be amazing? There was a whole lot more this morning. First first service took quite a few. But I want to give you a chance in response to our missions revival, our, 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 our text this morning, and the video you're about to see to introduce us to the Samaritan's Purse Christmas shoebox that will go around the world. My secretary will come up at the very end just to give you some nice instructions in her very humble way and prayerfully during the response time as the worship team sings we can move to this altar and take boxes back to our seats not so people can see us that's not the goal the goal is so that we can come and say god i'm going to respond what i have seen and by the way when you look at this video and you see kids with boxes could you just say this that's my box and watch their faces because it will be your box it is your box Not all of these pictures are staged. A few of them are. But notice as you watch this video, these are kids responding to a shoebox all around the world. Take a look.